The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. Since we start in Bloemfontein, where that much-anticipated judgment in Dr. Nandipa Magudamana's application to have her arrest and deportation from Tanzania declared unlawful, she lost in court today. Much was made about the fact that she'd brought in... Advocate Anton Katz, SC, uh, very much seen as the uh, the premier international uh, lawyer when it comes to extradition and deportation. She was challenging her arrest and deportation. She wanted to be released from custody. She's currently being detained at the Kronstadt Correctional Center in the Free State. Remember, of course, she and Tabo Besta were arrested in Tanzania in April. Have a listen to Judge Philip Loebscher handing down that order earlier today. I make the following order. The application is dismissed with costs, including the costs of two counsel were so employed by respectively the first to third respondents and the sixth respondent. Thank you. The court will now adjourn. That judgment handed down earlier. Oren Singh, EWN reporter, was watching that one first. Uh, Oren, firstly, the judge did declare that there was urgency, so he agreed with that, but he didn't agree with the argument that this was actually an extradition, not a deportation. Mm, definitely, man. And I think that's quite futile in the, in the sense that that was one of Magudumana's arguments, that this matter was urgent, and thus she had you know, made an urgent application to the Free State High Court in Bloemfontein. But I think essentially, you know, the, the court dismissed her overall application, um, declaring that her arrest was warranted. It was, in fact, a deportation, as was initiated by the Tanzanian officials and not South Africa, which would have essentially been an extradition. So what happens now? Can she appeal this? I think that's a big question now, Mandy, whether she is going to appeal this. But bear in mind the money that Nandipa Magdumana has to now pay because Judge Philip Loebscher ordered that she now has to pay all costs. And these are for three respondents. And we know for senior counsel mm. in the high court, that's, that's nothing less than 100,000 rand per day. Hey, listen, if you're going by Dali and Porfu's fees in Busisiwa and Kurbani's inquiry, that's 51,000 rand a day just for a senior counsel. Imagine. So, so we're estimating through our sources that anything between two and 300,000 rand is what she's going to have to pay going forward. So there's one of two things that can happen she can either appeal this matter but considering what she has to pay now does she really have the money to go and appeal or number two she goes ahead and makes a bail application and following this dismissal of her urgent application it doesn't seem like she stands a good chance um, in getting bail in any case i did see her lawyer saying that they're going to wait for instructions from her there are legal points that they have doubts on the npa has also been speaking uh, ultimately now she does remain in in prison where are we in in terms of the trial and Tabo Besta and and all of that so essentially what will happen now mandy is dr nandipa magdumana will join Tabo Best and six of the other co-accused, that's five former G4S employees, as well as her father Zulile Sekeleni in the Bloemfontein um, Magistrates Court on the 20th of June and that's when we expect uh, the case to commence we're not quite trial ready yet, so not even at pre-trial level, but um, we're going to see what happens there, it's most likely to be postponed once again for further investigations. Oren, thank you very much Oren Singh watching that judgment for us and
and, and just a point of clarity there, I think it's important to, to point out that uh, this issue of deportation and extradition, uh, the judge saying that, in fact, it, it was an extradition, it was a major concession in the judgment. Uh, one of the key issues there was what he said around Nandipa Magudamana giving consent. Remember, there was this issue around the fact that she wanted to come home to be with her children. Uh, she gave consent to come back to South Africa, and that's why she can't actually challenge uh, her arrest and her deportation um, if she actually consented to coming back to South Africa. That was one of the main findings there. What do you think about this? Uh, send me a WhatsApp voice note, 072-702-1702-072-567-1567. I see also the, the family of uh, the man who actually died, uh, whose body was found in Tabobesta's cell. They've been welcoming this judgment as well. They were in court today. Lots of developments around that. The Midday Report. Two men arrested in connection with the kidnapping of a 61-year-old Mangosutu University of Technology uh, professor, an acting vice chancellor, in fact, charged with murder following the recovery of the acting VC's body in Inanda, in Durban North, on Saturday afternoon. Uh, the victim was last seen on the 28th of May. He was reported missing. Uh, there were charges of kidnapping and carjacking, uh, but that, of course, has now been translated uh, and changed into charges of murder. Shan Dwarika is the name of that lecturer, his family responding uh, to the fact that he has now been killed. And Khantla Mabaso, KZN EWN reporter, in court for us today where those two people are appearing. And Khantla, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Tell us about what's happened in court today. Well, let me tell you what we've been waiting for that particular matter to um, since morning. It's now 12 o'clock, we were to, I mean, at 30 minutes past 12, we were told that it will eventually start at 12, and that was at around 11.30. The matter was expected to sit at the Durban Magistrates Court, Court 10, but we are told it's now been moved to Court 11. We are told that the docket of that particular case mainly was at the Inanda police station and currently being transported to Durban. You'd recall that that is where Dorica's body was found, in Inanda, in the, in, in the north of Durban. But we do know mainly that the two accused that are expected to appear here in court are facing murder and kidnapping charges. According to the police in the province, mainly is that more arrests are expected, but it doesn't come as a surprise, mainly because in that CCTV footage, the people captured there forcing him into a car. Those were three men, but only two were arrested. So police are currently still searching for one other suspect, mainly, but the matter has not mm. set as it said. So, Nkantla, you spoke about the CCTV footage. And just to remind people what happened uh, here, this uh, this electrical engineering lecturer, Shan Dwarika, he was busy with maintenance issues at a property that he had been renting out in Seacow mm-hmm. Lake in Durban. Um, the CCTV mm-hmm. footage shows him having a heated conversation with these men. They pulled him into an Honda, a Honda SUV and they sped away. What do we know about motive here? Was this a random criminal incident or is there more to it? Given his status, maybe it raises a lot of questions. It, it doesn't appear as one of those. Because in many instances, maybe you'd recall that this province currently is facing a lot of cases that have to do with gun violence and the killing of people. But many of those cases have acts of criminality. And I'm saying this because in many instances, people that are shot, it's because those uh, things, I mean, I mean, I mean, shooting incidents happen during hijacking, happen uh, during, um, you know, a robbery. But with this different one, 
it seems as though the most really they were intending to kidnap him. But as it stands, really it remains a question to the police as to what their preliminary investigations are pointing to in this regard. We do know that, that his body was dumped, mainly, and that's where police found it in Inanda. And really, it raises a lot of eyeballs again about the area itself in the north of Kebe. Inanda mainly is ranking, is number one ranking here, a police station here in the province with a high rate of crime, including killing and rape. So it really um, leaves a question to the police, which of course, maybe we have asked as to, as it stands, what do preliminary investigation point to? And the police post in the province had to uh, respond and say that police are investigating, saying that they do not want to jeopardize their case. But more will be heard as that matter makes it, I mean, matter case and kidnapping make its way in the dock, we'll hear from the state as to how strong their case is in this regard. Nkantla, thank you. Nkantla Mabaso, KZN EWN reporter, waiting for those two men uh, arrested in connection with the kidnapping and murder of Shan Duarika. They're due to appear in court. And then later today, the uh, Minister of Higher Education and Training, Dr. Bladen Zamande, along with the MUT Executive Management, are going to be visiting the Duarika residence. They're going to see the family of Shan Duarika. A really concerning story. And I think that we will get more clarity uh, as that court proceeding does develop because... Was this a random criminal event? Was it just a kidnapping that was for ransom? Or is it to do with corruption? We know we've seen lots of uh, tertiary institution corruption. Just look at what happened at University Fort Forte. The Midday Report. Let's go to Parliament now. Two issues that we're looking at. The one is Busisiwe Mgwebane's Section 194 inquiry. It was due to start today again. Remember, there's new attorneys. Advocate Dalian Porf was still on that. Uh, remember, he's charging 51,000 rand a day, according to what we've been told. Um, but then also a committee that has been tasked with appointing a new public protector has been set up. So let's look at that process, when it's going to start, what are the timelines around that. So let's start with Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN uh, parliamentary reporter. Lindsay, good afternoon to you. So while Busisiwe Mkwabane is still the public protector, she's the suspended public protector, she's fighting that inquiry, the, the committee has now been set up to appoint a new public protector. What do we know about that? Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, yes, still in the process. I think what we need to make very clear to our listeners right from the onset is that the two processes are not related in as far as the fact that no matter how Bukisiwa and Kobane's impeachment inquiry turns out, their term comes to an end on the 14th of October. So either way, that will be the end. It's a non-renewable seven-year term. And so even if this process, the Section 194 process, wasn't playing out, Bukisiwa and Kobane would have to bid farewell to the Office of the Public Protector in October anyway. So in the meantime, um, Parliament has to, they're actually a little bit behind, Mandy. They don't have much time to appoint a new public protector. And it's quite a process. If you remember in the past, Parliament held very lengthy uh, public open um, interviews for new candidates. And so we know that there are going to be 36 members sitting on this ad hoc committee. It's the biggest that we've had so far for such a process. There will be voting and non-voting members. And essentially, Mandy, their first order of business, I'm told, will be tomorrow to elect a chairperson of that committee and then to place an advertisement for candidates who want to be South Africa's next public protector.
So they put out an advert and then people can get nominated or apply, I imagine. Uh, this was, as you mentioned, the last time around. It was very public. Um, there was a lot of politics at play as well uh, in terms of who supported Busisiwe and Kobane. I think some of those parties regretting their decision and doing about turns. There must be key lessons that, that politicians have learned from the last time the public protector was, was uh, elected. Indeed, and you will remember that Busisiwe Mkwabani has repeatedly in this inquiry made mention of the fact that right from the onset, for example, that the DA who has brought this motion that given rise to this inquiry, were dead set against her being nominated in the first place. Um, I mean, ultimately, it is the president who appoints the public protector, but he does so on the recommendation uh, of parliament. Uh, and so the, the deciding votes, even though all small parties um, have a representation on this committee, from what I can see, it's only the EFF who have not submitted their names for the committee. It will be the ANC, the DA, the EFF, the Freedom Front Plus, who will ultimately, and the ANC, of course, who will ultimately mm. make that final vote and make that recommendation uh, to the National Assembly. But yes, we can expect... Whoever applies, it's an open process. Anybody who feels that they meet those criteria can apply to be the next public protector. We can expect uh, mm. maybe over the next two months there are going to be very public uh, yeah. interviews for this process. Oh, that's going to be fun, fun to watch. Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN parliamentary reporter. Who do you think should be the next public protector? Do you have recommendations? I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on that. Well, let's have a look now at that inquiry that's still ongoing. Babalo and Denze, EWN uh, parliamentary reporter, has got an update on that one today. Babalo, good afternoon to you. So we were expecting Busisiwe Mkwebane's um, inquiry to continue today. It's being postponed because of issues around uh, the lawyers that want access to documents. What's happened with that? Um, yes, indeed, Mandy. And the new lawyers are China attorneys. And these are lawyers that are on the public protector, Office of the Public Protector's database that they can tap into when they need legal assistance. So she's selected these lawyers or uh, preferred lawyers, um, Chani attorneys. And they were supposed, well, the process was supposed to start today with them as the new attorneys um, representing Musa and Kwebane. But a delay in proceedings in the 11th hour, and there's been, you know, correspondence between them and the committee chairperson, Richard Gianchi, um, and they've raised a few issues, I guess, which is also part of the delay because they have to go through all these documents, you know, to get familiar with the process. And they've also raised issues, for example, in their letter to the committee, you know, they want clarity, you know, on uh, the 4 million rand cap for payment or legal fees. And so they also want clarity on, you know, Mr. Mkwebane, the client agreeing or committing to foot the bill once that 4 million dries up. So still, you know, debate or issues around this 4 million cap, as well as issues around the drop box, which is really where, you know, these legal, the, the lawyers as well as the evidence leaders, they, they upload all these documents that are relevant to the committee, the legal documents, etc. And they also want access to the set. Richard Jandy really warning in his response that, you know, this could lead to, you know, this 4 million drying up, you know, all these hours that are required. And he says in his letter that, Advocate Stalimpo, who is still here, he's still the, the, the senior counsel, and he's quite familiar with the process. So, mainly, really is this delay, which is quite technical in nature, and it's in the 11th hour. This correspondence is really quite recent for over the weekend, but we expect this process now to start with the hearings with the new attorneys on Wednesday. Babalo, thank you very much. Babalo and Denze, EWN parliamentary reporter. And Richard Dianti, the chairperson, as Babalo said, making the point, but 
Daddy and Puff has been there the whole time. Why is there a need for the attorneys to get another delay now if uh, Daddy and Puff uh, knows exactly what's going on and uh, the, the the fees being made public that he is uh, apparently, allegedly, being uh, paid 51,000 rants a day to appear at that inquiry? The Midday Report. The Democratic Alliance wants to challenge President Cyril Ramaphosa's decision to withhold the inquiry, the panel's findings into Lady R. Uh, that inquiry looking at whether or not South Africa loaded weapons, ammunitions onto a Russian ship last year. Uh, the president's spokesperson, Vincent Maguenia, has told News 24 that in terms, the terms of reference for the inquiry will not be gazetted or published. The investigation covers issues of national security and classified information which is protected from disclosure. He's drawing parallels there to the inquiry that investigated the July 2021 riots in KZN and uh, Gauteng, that those also weren't made public. We know that uh, Deputy retired Deputy Justice Phineas Mojapello is going to be chairing that uh, inquiry. Well, let's speak now to the Democratic Alliance leader, John Steenhuisen. John, good afternoon. Thank you for your time. Why do you believe the president doesn't want the findings of this inquiry, or the terms of reference for that matter, to be made public? Good afternoon to you, Mandy, and good afternoon to the listeners. And I think you should throw your hat in the ring for the public protected job. I've read your books, and I think you do an excellent job. I'll stick to um, journalism, thanks. It's much safer. Done <laughs> um, because very clearly what's happened in the last few weeks is a realisation that the announcements made by the minister that there was nothing on the ship, etc., um, are not true. And I think that it's been done to protect the government from these embarrassing disclosures. I mean, this is a very different line to the line the president took when I questioned him about this in Parliament a few weeks ago when he said, no, we're going to have an inquiry and it's going to get to the bottom of it and we'll then be able to move from there. Uh, it's now going to be impossible for us as members of Parliament to hold the president and his executive, as well as those officials who've been involved in this matter potentially, to, uh, to account if this report and even the terms of reference are going to be shrouded in the secrecy. There's huge public interest in this matter. Uh, the allegations were publicly made, and I think it's in the public interest to understand exactly what went on there uh, and to have a definitive answer. Were there materials of war loaded onto the Lady R in Simon's time under the cover of darkness, or were they not? And I think that it's, it's disingenuous for government to try now and adopt a North Korean-style approach where everything must be kept under the covers. Uh, a North Korean style um, uh, inquiry. Uh, uh, there's definitely the sense that the government is trying to hide something here. And I think that's the prevailing narrative um, that has emanated from this Lady R story. Uh, the argument from some would be that there shouldn't even be an inquiry in the first place. It's a yes or no question. Either the government knows that we loaded arms or they didn't. Do you think there should be an inquiry at all? Well, I've said from the beginning, we don't need to have a commission inquiry in the first place because this whole issue could have been resolved by simply releasing publicly the manifest. Uh, the, there would have to have been paperwork with ship coming into and out of Simon's Town. Why has that ship's manifest not just been made public? Then we could have all seen yes or no, and it would have made it easy. But I do think that the public are being hoodwinked here. I don't believe it is credible that the president, as commander-in-chief of the armed services, six months after the debacle happened,
still does not know whether there were arms loaded on the ship or not. I find it very hard to believe. Uh, and I imagine what the commission inquiry is designed to do is to buy time, to obfuscate, to cloud the issues so that they can avoid having to answer that tough question. And this has been confirmed to me now by the fact that we're going to have pay all this public money to have this inquiry. And the report's going to be kept secret. It does not make sense to me. So let me play devil's advocate for a minute and uh, let's look at what Brumpause's spokesperson, Vincent Maguenia, said. He says, the investigation covers issues of national security and classified information which is protected from disclosure. Is there a point where our government does need to classify information that perhaps we could be making ourselves vulnerable if we do make some of this information public? Well, of course, the government's got a duty to protect the citizens from any clear and present danger to the national security. But Mandy, I would answer that by saying this is something that happened six months ago. If there was any threat to our national security, it's long dissipated. Uh, And I think that the government's hiding behind this national security uh, cloak uh, to avoid having to answer the tough questions. And I come back to the the nub of the point. If there was, and I'm not going to use the word that Tandy Medisa used in Parliament because it's uncouth, but if there really was nothing on the Lady R, why don't you just release the manifest? Why don't you release the report? Surely then it would exonerate and prove that you were right. But the fact that you want to keep the report secret points to me to a very key indication that there is something that needs to be hidden and covered up here, and government's now going to use every excuse in the book to try and now ensure that the public never actually know what the truth was. John, thank you very much. John Steenhuizen is the leader of the Democratic Alliance, the DA, challenging this decision uh, by the president to make this inquiry uh, not public and the terms of reference are being made not public as well. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that government has an obligation uh, to make it public in terms of transparency? I think that the allegations were made in public by the American ambassador. Surely, surely the inquiry and the findings should be made public as well. The Midday Report. Well, speaking of transparency and uh, making things public and open, you would have seen a lot of reporting over the weekend around an issue with Amu Bungani, the investigative journalist outfit, launching an urgent application before the Joburg High Court on Saturday before Judge uh, Stephen van Nieuwenhuizen. And that was in response to a judgment that was handed down on Thursday, an order handed down on Thursday last week by Judge John Holland Muta. And this is to do with the Moti group of companies. An order was uh, taken secretly on Thursday. It compelled the Amubungani Center for Investigative Journalism to hand over documents to the Moti group of companies within 48 hours. That order was then subsequently replaced by the Saturday order because the initial order effectively was only hearing one side of the story. Amabungani um, arguing that they didn't even know about this court application. They're saying that it uh, was done in secret and they weren't uh, open to it. And of course, this has got all kinds of implications. If they have to hand over the documents, um, it could expose the whistleblower who gave them the documents documents. It also affects media freedom as well. Caroline James is the advocacy coordinator at Amabungani. Caroline, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, so I've tried to explain the, 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 the sequence of events. Where we stand at the moment is that there was a judgment handed down on Saturday, which um, maybe you can explain it for us, but ultimately you don't actually have to hand over any of these documents yet. Yes, no matter you're correct in the sequence 
sequence that you've explained is is completely accurate. And the, as you as you said, the effect of the judgment on Saturday was that we can retain possession of the documents that we may have or may have access to. They aren't directly in our possession and aren't directly in South Africa. But we are still prohibited from reporting on any evidence that is contained within those documents that we may may have. So if we look at the judgment that was handed down on Thursday, that was an ex parte judgment. So it was without notice. It happened in chambers. Um, the Motti group of companies, their lawyers uh, went to go and get this order. What are your concerns about that? The fact that they were able to go to court ex parte, not giving you notice, you weren't able to respond. What are the implications of such a thing? I mean, to us, that seems it's an incredible development in the democratic court process. This is something that was a sort of practice that was used quite regularly pre-apartheid or sort of in the apartheid pre-democracy days against the media, but certainly has not been used since then. And it, it really means that we had absolutely no opportunity to put our side across. The court didn't hear what, what our position was and wasn't able to hear that the history of events that we had engaged with the Morty Group's lawyers beforehand. And to us, this is an incredibly dangerous precedent that has been set and it might, if, it's, if it goes unchallenged, it could allow other powerful politicians or businessmen to use this as a way to silence negative reporting on them. And Caroline, how worried are you about the um, implications it could have for, for whistleblowers? If you are forced to hand over these documents, what then does it mean for people who want to come forward to journalists to hand over evidence? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's another seriously concerning aspect of it. And I think we made that quite clear in our submissions to the court on Saturday was that the effect of us having to hand over these documents would result in us having to reveal our source, which we cannot do and we will not do. And as you say, that makes whistleblowers fearful that it might happen in future. But I do think that we are still, we do still trust the court process and the the depth of our case law on this on this issue that once once it is challenged and raised before another court that that will be highlighted and demonstrated that it's not possible for that to happen which hopefully will then help to to provide a little bit more protection to the current source that we have, but also to whistleblowers in the future. So you have this uh, judgment handed down on Saturday by Judge Stefan van Nieuwenhuizen. What happens now going forward? So as you, as you said, we um, don't have to hand back the the documents, but we are still prevented from reporting on it. And we are engaging with our attorneys and um, counsel to see what our next step will be. We certainly are planning to challenge the order that was handed down last week, the ex parte order in its entirety, to seek to have that completely set aside. But the judge on Saturday said that that wasn't appropriate to be doing in a sort of hyper-urgent situation on a Saturday morning. And so we will be looking at at how best to, to challenge that in the coming weeks on an urgent basis, but not dragging judges out of bed on a Saturday morning. I understand it's semantics, but um, the Motti group is arguing that this latest judgment was in fact in their favour. Uh, they believe that it was a victory for them because you can't report on any of the stolen documents uh, which you're in possession of until the Motti group is given the opportunity to verify them. Is that semantics or, or do you disagree with that? Uh, we do disagree with that. I think that listening to the judge's comments in the hearing, it was very clear that he was very 
unhappy with the ex parte order that had been granted and stated that he didn't see how it could have been granted, which to us is a demonstration that the Morty Group should never have been awarded that order in the first place. And secondly, he recognized that we may well have have won on the merits about removing the interdict against us publishing, but felt it wasn't the appropriate time then. So it certainly wasn't an outright victory for for, for the Morty Group in that we aren't allowed to publish. We are we will be challenging it in the next couple of, of weeks and we are confident that our, our rights to to publish information that's in the public interest will be vindicated. Caroline, thank you very much. Caroline James is the Advocacy Coordinator at Amabungani. And I can also tell you that Sunaid Motti will be on Bruce Whitfield's The Money Show uh, just after 6 o'clock this evening. So that's the one side of the story. If you'd like to hear what Sunaid Motti has to say about this court action, about uh, why, uh, to set the record straight, as he says, why they've decided to take legal action against Amabungani and uh, their reaction to that judgment yesterday. Listen to The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield from 6 o'clock this evening. The Midday Report. So we are nearing the deadline for the expiration of the Zimbabwean exemption permits, the ZDP permits. That's uh, fast approaching. And there has been this mad scramble by those uh, 178,000 Zimbabweans who are living and working in South Africa to uh, try and get waivers from the Home Affairs Minister, Aaron Watsweledi. So that means they've got to pay, they've got to go through this whole process um, of trying to get waivers, they've got to go to these various offices around the country. All of this takes money, all of this takes time. So let's get an update with Khamotso Mudise, EWN reporter, who went to the Home Affairs Office in Brooklyn this morning, um, and Khamotso joining us uh, in studio now. Khamotso, you accompanied... One lady, you've been following her journey. Um, tell us about Stella and what the process has been for Stella. Sure, Mandy. So, I mean, we've been following Stella since June last year. She actually started uh, the process of applying for um, an alternative permit. She wants a work permit or a work visa. She started uh, at the end of 2021. So that's around November 2021, right after the minister announced the expiry of the ZDP permit. And so she then started the process and she was told she needs to apply for a labor exemption. And that's because her skill as a nursery school principal is not categorized as skill skill. So because of that, she has to go through labor in order to get an exemption for her then to apply to Home Affairs um, for her work permit. Um, and that process really has just proven to be so long and tedious. Um, but eventually we heard how the minister um, had actually was now giving waivers. So people weren't uh, required to apply or go through that labor process anymore. And if you had and you'd spent all that money, well, you know, sorry for you, mm. because now the minister's been giving these waivers. So I caught up with her today because she's waiting for the waiver. She applied in September. It's been nine months and still nothing in her inbox. She's been told to wait. Let's listen to um, where exactly she is in this process. I submitted my waiver documentation in September. And as soon as you submit, you receive two S, uh, SMSs, one that they have uh, received and one that it has been forwarded to Department of Home Affairs. And also on the 9th of May, I received a, an, an SMS. That SMS was telling us that uh, the outcome was going to be emailed to us, but as of yet, uh, nothing has come via my email. 
So Stella, like so many other um, people that are applying for for waivers, um, she's spent thousands on the labour exemption process. That's not relevant anymore because of this waiver issue. Um, But the waiver issue itself, um, from what I've been hearing and anecdotally, that is uh, firstly a very cumbersome process. I've heard about corruption uh, at these various offices as well. And we still don't have any clarity on, on what the story is with these waivers. Yeah, so the minister's insisting that he's signing all these waivers, right? Uh, he said to Clement, actually, on the Clement Manuel show last week, that he's signing hundreds of waivers every day. However, one of the ladies that I spoke to today said that they were still issuing waivers from people that applied in June. So Stella, who applied in September, is what, like four months? There's still four months uh, of, of people to go before she gets her waiver. But there's also another lady that I spoke to today who uh, was speaking off the record. She'd actually deposited the 1,600 rand for her waiver waiver application and she'd missed a number in her reference mm. and because of that she went back to the bank to say listen I've missed this number the bank said the money's gone already it's reflecting on home affairs site they need to give you your money back she went to home affairs today and they said they can't help her because she I mean there's no way of them finding no. that money so there's all those issues there around that but it's also the fact that you know as you rightly say they've lost so much money I mean Stella spent thousands, almost yeah. 8,000 rand on this process to try get the exemption. She sent people to Zim to try get her clearances. She's used DHL. She's used, I mean, she's gone to what all these things. And now she's at this point where she really just wants to get this waiver. And the waiver is not even the answer because after they get the waiver, they need to now apply for the actual permit. And that process all has to happen before the 30th of June. Komoto, thank you so much. Komoto Modise, EWN reporter, an update there. And of course, still waiting for the court judgment on this matter as well. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.